1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: In 2012, Karen and Barbara Fields published Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life. The puzzle the two authors and sisters raise is why a scientifically discredited idea of race persists. Racecraft is their term for the rational processes of reasoning that makes race appear to the mind and imagination as a vivid truth, in the same way that witchcraft once appeared real to very smart people. Believers in witchcraft had authoritative sources in the science and law of the day. Likewise, daily life produces an immense accumulation of supporting evidence for racecraft. The belief that humans are naturally divided into distinct groups identifiable by certain physical or other traits is a kind of magical thinking that people find impossible to let go of. For our ancestors and for us, it often seems impossible for so much evidence to accumulate around a conception which has no basis in fact. The fields helped me resolve a problem that I had been wrestling with for a while. Oil matters more today than other metals and minerals in that the world pays some 10 times more for the good annually than it does for gold, iron, and copper, the next three most valuable raw material exports. But like race, popular and scholarly beliefs about oil as power also have no basis in fact, yet evidence for the belief continues to accumulate in the rhetoric of U.S. officials, uh, academics, and the press. And like racecraft, oilcraft has its insidious, all-too-real consequences.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nancy Coe, your host for today. And that was Robert Vitalis riffing off of his latest book, Oilcraft, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy, and that's out with Stanford University Press this past July. Bob is also the author of America's Kingdom, Myth-Making on the Saudi Oil Frontier, and When Capitalists Collide, Business Conflict and the End of Empire in Egypt. He's also a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the podcast, Bob.
2: Thanks, and it's great to be here. This is one of my uh, favorite podcast series, actually.
0: (laughs) That's great to hear. So one of the things I love reading about you, Bob, reading you, Bob, uh, whether in your earlier work or here in oil, oil craft is the way that you don't just break down certain powerful myths as untrue, which they are. You also tell us a little bit about why they're so compelling in the first place and, and how they come to shape reality. So, you know, Bob is, is your way too honest friend, you know. So I'm pleased to warn the audience that in oil craft, there is no mercy to be had. Neither on hawkish foreign policy experts nor CNN pundits nor even on their critics—the what Bob calls the tenured radicals—whose who, glib critiques unwittingly reinforce the premises of right-wing grand strategists. But before we get into the nitty-gritty particulars of Oilcraft, I wanted to ask you—you know—as you point out in Oilcraft, people like Morris Edelman and Roger Stern have long been trying to demystify our myths about oil. What brought you to this book, and uh, why now?
2: Um, you know it's a great question i and i don't know that i I can solve that actually um but well i'll tell you uh, one of one of the uh one of the inspirers of the book or who got me working on the on the topic is uh Victoria de Grazia in your department. She invited me to a conference where I started to lay out bits of this argument now that goes back about um i don 't know almost almost like uh, fifteen years ago now um <laughs> Uh, but uh i've been wrestling with our ideas about oil and geopolitics for some time um and it started to develop this like kind of revisionist account about some of the arguments that uh, uh, uh oil and grand strategists make that that seem to me uh to ha- to be either not falsifiable or empirically uh uh, uh Unvalidated, and I guess this book is the culmination of my uh, uh working on these uh issues for some time and continuing to engage scholars who were also interested in uh, uh challenging some of these deeply held beliefs like Roger stern and then uh my my old friend Ellis Goldberg, who passed away last september um vicky and and others so
0: that's fabulous. And uh, can you tell us, from your, for the audience, what exactly is oilcraft? Can you voice the myth for us and, and maybe tell us a little bit about where, where it began?
2: Well, you know, so uh, if, 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 what I argue in the book is oil is simply another commodity that is bought and sold on the world market. Okay? Oilcraft the, are the processes of reasoning that, that m- make it appear otherwise. And that many that are that lead to many deeply held beliefs, for instance, uh one that Juan Gonzalez has repeated on democracy now that Brian Black has written in his book about oil that many, many people are uh, right in argue and believe, which is that states have gone to war for oil numerous times in the past um and the one of the problems is uh you can't actually demonstrate that as as true
0: right. And so what are some of these myths? I mean, I, I know that you point in particular to two surrounding security, ideas about security and ideas about scarcity, right? And I'm actually reminded of, you know, Alan Greenspan's whole advocating the removal of Saddam Hussein, you know, on the, you know, premise that, uh, you know, the, the fear that, you know, rival power, that because oil is this sort of supposedly scarce resource, rival powers are going to conspire to gain exclusive control over foreign supplies, um, or that you know, countries like Iraq, uh, Iraq under Saddam, or for example, a less friendly uh, Saudi monarchy will choose not to sell the oil. You know, this is all the sort of you know re- legwork like that this sort of reasoning is doing um, uh, to uh, so, that, so that someone like Alan Greenspan can say something like that, right? Um, but so, can you can you flesh out a little bit more um, um, what's going on here? Um, what exactly is this argument about, like oil? Uh, bZB pricing for instance uh,
2: great so um, when I knew I was going to write this book um, what I started with what I lay out as the as the kind of three axioms uh, that help us to undermine the false beliefs about oilcraft. The first being that um, uh, in in a in a market full of buyers and sellers, everyone has access. So you need do nothing special in, in order to secure access to that commodity. Now if you think about it, since the nationalization of the Western oil firms in the Middle East in the 1970s, the United States has expressed as a central part of its policy in the Middle East the need to guarantee access to oil, right? Every president from uh, Jimmy Carter to uh, uh, President Obama uh, art- have articulated that over and over again. So axiom number one says, actually, the United States need do nothing in order to secure access to oil. Now, that's a, that is such a deeply held belief that especially oil security experts, grand strategists and the like, uh, can't really... Uh, 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 deal with that uh, argument it, f- from their perspectives, um, oil is so valuable to the world economy and is so vulnerable uh, to uh, disruption and or such a target for uh, rising or enemy states that one must act to uh, uh, protect that protect the prize to use daniel jurgen 's argument. the second axiom i said uh, w- and i and I you know basically stole this from a a a security expert at MIT, which is that, you know, his name is Barry Posen. He wrote a a book called Restraint, uh, calling for a new foreign policy of uh, offshore balancing. Basically, Barry's argument is the United States doesn't need to be in the Middle East. There is no strategic rationale, a, 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 a verifiable strategic rationale for being in the Middle East, including uh, uh, protecting the Al Saud in power if, and this is a big if, If why you're there is to secure the flow of oil, because there's no need to do that. And Barry argues that the kinds of military threats that either, you know, security experts or what I call some enchanted amateurs who imagine themselves as, you know, uh, uh, global energy supply experts or students of the of the real politic of American hegemony uh, uh, think uh, are the threats that or or are the are the threats and or the reasons why the u s is there in the region? Barry Posen works through the logic and sort of says uh, no good uh, either either the, the the threats are not real or and this is a key part they're not amenable uh, to solution by military means, right The United States is never going to be able to stop a uh, revolution. In Saudi Arabia, where that revolution to take place? Think about the other revolutions inside the region, the other upheavals. The United States has been uh, 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 unable to uh, 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 change or stave off, et cetera. So the belief that somehow U.S. presence in the Middle East is this force for stability and oil supply and oil s- supply
0: security, Barry says, is wrong. And then the third axis. Yeah, go ahead. I think it. I think it's interesting how those two myths kind of interplay with one another, of course, right? Because this things, this this notion that like this pretense that, oh, the United States can, you know, intervene in Saudi Arabia and that that would ostensibly, you know, prevent some kind of uprising. Underneath that is, a, is an anxiety that goes back to the first myth, which is um, that there's something special about the U.S.-Saudi relationship, right? And that there's something about the relationship between the U.S. and, and the Saud monarchy that ensures oil supply right and oil export from there right and and but that as you say in the from the you know debunking the first myth, that's that's actually not true uh
2: well you know uh um everything i think everything we believe about the u.s saudi special so-called special relationship is uh is fiction um and what i discovered in the book one of one of the discoveries in the book was how recent the latest piece of fiction or the latest myth is, right? And that's the idea that the United States um, uh, struck a bargain with the Al Saud back in 1945 on board the USS Quincy uh, that has led the United States, that is basically the core of that bargain is uh, oil for security. Now, any I'm sure you've heard that phrase. Um, you might have used it in a lecture. You might have heard, heard people use it, using it in lectures. Um, you hear it on TV. It's repeated all the time now. Well, what I discovered was the first time anyone ever argued that fact, that idea that some bargain was struck at the, on, on the Quincy back in 1945 was in 2001. Literally months after 9/11, and what, what I'm so struck by is, right we, we have six, you know that's, we have 60 years of careful his, history writing about the United States and the Middle East, about the U.S- Saudi relationship. And no book from ninth, the first one that was ever written was written in 1948, uh, by or 1949, rather, by a guy named Sanger. No book. Uh, through Nadav Safran studies of uh, uh, Saudi security policy, Greg Goss writing about uh, uh, international relations in the Middle East and so forth. No book ever said something about an oil for security deal uh, in, uh, negotiated back in 1945. In all those decades, it is only since 9-11, and it took a while for the, uh, for the myth to, take, uh, to, to arise or, or gain strength. And now it's just believed uh, without, without question.
0: So, to recap, we've discussed the myth that uh, oil access is threatened, and the second myth, which is that it must thus be secured via military might. To which you respond uh, in the first that oil is threatened no more than any other natural resource is, um, and that putative threats to oil price and supply that ostensibly motivate US force uh, in the Middle East, for instance, are not compelling or else. You know, cannot be dealt with efficiently by military power anyway. Um, what's the third myth that we're trying to get at?
2: Yes. So, uh, so uh, the third axiom comes from a, 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 th- a third critic of our beliefs about um, oil, and that's Roger Stern. And what Roger did, you know, he's, he's been working on a, on a huge book on, on this topic for a long time now. Uh, but what Roger did, and I'd never seen anyone do before, is, is map oil prices right uh, on to uh, you know graph that along with the prices of all other raw materials and commodities and what we find is those prices co-vary, right they go up and down together and this is true for the course of the 20th century and into the 21st century and as i and i said wow i've never seen a map like that because of course if if you think about it today uh, on any random day we will learn something about oil prices right? Uh, uh, o- 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 OPEC plus might, you know, might, the the market might be too soft for OPEC plus, meaning OPEC plus Russia to uh, uh, um, uh, inc- inc- increase production. And uh, whatever action OPEC is taking is believed to have some kind of remarkable effect on the price of oil. Um, and at the same time, we, no one, unless you study the business pages, unless you're an investor or reading the back pages of the Wall Street Journal, you don't know what the prices of copper are doing or what the prices of gold are doing or what the prices of cotton are doing. And what they're mostly doing is rising and falling in tandem. So what that means is, ultimately, is that the main determinant of oil prices, is not the actions of a so-called cartel, uh, which is no longer a cartel and was only a cartel for a short period of time. It's not the action of cartels or actors or Saudi Arabia as an alleged swing producer. It's it's a it's macroeconomic supply and demand questions. The best we could say is that in in distinct moments, right? And there's very few of them, actually, though we think that somehow oil producers have this power to control the price of oil or bring it up and down and so forth. The best we could say that is in, in, in discrete moments and infrequently, not frequently, the best that might happen is that troughs in prices, how far they fall, or rises in prices, how high they rise, Right can be affected on the margins uh, by those producers, but it's it's rare that that happens. Okay, and but instead we have this vision of you know a constant manipulation of oil prices by um, uh, OPEC or Saudi Arabia or Saudi Arabia the Russians and so forth. And typically then uh, you get kinds of political. Uh, uh, Causes for those manipulations, especially on the part of—I uh, uh, was going to say—radical cr- critics on the left.
0: <laughs> so let's hang back a little bit. Um, you point to two sort of foundational moments or phases of oil craft making, right? Uh, the first being in the sort of 1920s, and the second being in the 1970s. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the in the 1920s that's sort of setting the stage for for everything that you're talking about now?
2: Sure. Um, You know, uh, I was an undergrad. um, We have to digress. I was an undergraduate in the 1970s, started uh, college um, in the midst of the 1973 so-called crisis with the gasoline lines in the United States, and I was a commuter to college. So I was on those gas lines myself. But that's also the moment when I started uh, toward the end of my college career studying American foreign policy for the first time. And at that moment, critics of American foreign policy had had a powerful argument that they made, which was that the United States was involved around the world in the third world, in Southeast Asia and so forth, primarily to control raw materials. It's the it's it's the the need to control them or extract them or have access to them or preserve their their connection to them is what drove all of American foreign policy uh, or drove imperialism or drove the Vietnam War etc. is it, kind of this raw materials argument was quite powerful. Well, I went back and found where those arguments first started to be made systematically, and that was in the 1920s. So it was a main stay of uh, a, a common sense knowledge and uh, of uh, uh, studies of capitalism and studies of the first studies of international economics or geopolitics to argue that the great powers were involved in attempts, uh, were involved in attempts to control, secure, gain access to, preserve, have monopoly, holds over, raw materials of all, all sorts. Now, the reason I am telling you this is you don't hear that argument anymore you know i'm sure that if you took a course on the well you also do uh uh, asian american stuff but if you did if you did a course on on south asian history or american foreign policy in south asia no one is going to make an argument that the war in vietnam was for control of raw materials right this this (laughs) deep belief that was held until about, I think, you know, the late seventies and eighties. And what I argue is, the, of the funny, a funny thing happened is that the, the, all the beliefs of what we would, what, what we at the time called either new Marxists or the new left or neo-Marxists or revisionist uh, uh, diplomatic historians about raw materials have disappeared, and instead we've kind of reconfigured or, or, or reorganized that story to tell it as one about the drive to preserve, control, gain access to, monopolize one commodity only, and that's oil. So I was really struck by how, you know, uh, uh, there's this, there's this like shift or like in the Gestalt from commodities of all sorts to the demand for one commodity. And I, you know, basically concluded that um, uh, it's really, what explains that is the, um, what I call the national trauma of uh, 1973.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: Wow! So I'm really struck by the, that. This, this the role of 1920s um, in your book, and um, if you actually go into uh, the footnotes of, of Bob's book, he goes into the uh, newspaper article titles from the 1920s, which are actually quite amazing. Um, so you have one from I think 1923 or something from the Christian Science Monitor about uh, Caucasian Solidarities, you know. But you also have stuff from like the New York Times, sort of. Uh, trotting out the very discourse uh, that the so-called uh, Columbia school um, that Bob talks about, you know, we're, we're critiquing, but the script kind of going that uh, the great war, world war one uh, and the concomitant world instability, you know, was caused by the unequal world distribution of a vast array of raw materials. So, you know, would a renewed struggle for colonies or for raw materials lead to another war between white people or would a, you know, heretofore unknown phenomenon, the sort of ominous, rising racial consciousness of of the east of you know quote-unquote Mohammedans or or asiatics right um you know uh threatened the west uh by sort of imitating their signature imperialist methods um you know and in 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 oilcraft you know as you say in, in your book you know this is this is this moment when a lot of this sort of myth making about oilcraft but also critiques of it comes into being but i i was wondering if you could chat a little bit sort of Uh, chat a little bit about your um, earlier work with regard to this before we go into the 70s Um, because as you say in, in America's Kingdom, your earlier book about Aramco, sort of biography of Aramco the 1920s are also you know when American's export Jim Crow methods of dividing labor by race to Saudi Arabia, among amongst other imperial opposts, of course. And, you know, we began this episode with an analogy between oil craft and racecraft, but there seems to be an even more on the ground connection here, um, you know, vis-a-vis American foreign policy and racism. I mean, J- Jim Crow and Aramco began just as we became sort of colorblind in the u.s and uh and and the war to end the racial wage system would be reenacted in saudi arabia as opposed to just um on, um, on american shores so how can we think of these two stories uh together i mean that of the, the one that you tell in oilcraft in the 1920s and and and, and thereafter and then and that of america's kingdom uh,
2: it's a great question and i uh i need to fill in a uh a a gap in the bibliography, okay, which will which will which will help you to understand something about America's Kingdom, which you've read, and the and the connection you want me to make here, and there is a connection, which is, you know, um, I started working on Saudi Arabia, put that project, uh, what would eventually become America's Kingdom in 2005, put that project down, and instead uh, started to work on a different book which was a revisionist history of the discipline of international relations in the United States, um, which, and, it's, and there were two elements to that revisionism. Uh, and the, the element number one was that the, the birth of that discipline uh, was really, um, the, what drove the discipline was, uh, uh, were racism, Right, the discipline, the, the, the discipline, thought in racist terms about world order, uh, and it studied imperialism. So the the big problem for IR, why international relations in the United States comes into existence in the 1920s, is the fear of uh, the threats to the West arising from either. Uh, 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 imperial rivalries over the territorial possessions around the world with their raw materials and so forth and worse and this is what uh, you were hinting at in oilcraft in the in the reference you gave and worse that the benighted races of the east were starting to revolt against us OK, so no one studying international relations in the United States up until a few years ago said the discipline was really concerned about uh, 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 sustaining white world supremacy over the threatened revolt of the West. OK, so I was working on that book, but never but put it down to return to write America's Kingdom Uh doesn't matter why that was, but that explains to you why in America's kingdom, you find references to W.E.B. Du Bois um, because I had really started studying Afro-America at that point and did that in in doing that, doing that work helped me to understand the nature of Jim Crow and the building of the Jim Crow system in Saudi Arabia. So when I finished America's kingdom, I came out with the, uh, uh, um, revisionist history of uh, international relations white world order black power politics the birth of american international relations now in the last in that la- in the last chapter of that book i lay out i didn't say this to people but i lay out uh, in a few paragraphs what will be the next two books i work on oilcraft was one of them so that's a long that's it's a kind of long-winded way of telling you the following that it seems to me that we can trace at least one strand what, what one strand of oil craft is today, that is these factitious beliefs about oil and why it's necessary to secure it against threats. Well, one of those strands goes back to the 1920s, and it's basically a, uh, it's basically racist to put it uh, 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 to put it crudely, uh, meaning meaning this back in the 1920s. It, folks were convinced either that uh, they could that the the West that needed it. Well, here's here here's how it went. The West needs these raw materials of all sorts, not just oil. These raw materials happen to be located far from the West, and in fact, tended to be located in what they call the tropics, where they where the 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 pseudoscience of race said back then westerners white people can't exist right so they had to come up with special forms of colonialism to be able to guarantee the extraction of these resources that the west needed for the, for their survival and in fact you start to get these arguments made that the resources of the colon, the colonized areas of the world do not belong to the folks who live, uh, uh, you know, there or, you know, are sitting by accident on top of the ground where these things exist, but they belong, they're the common heritage of mankind. They belong to the West. They belong uh, to the peoples who can utilize them and need them, right? So f- what gets spun out of those kinds of ideas is this idea that, um, uh, 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 Arabs say okay uh, or or Venezuelans or Chinese will not be able to produce these resources um, uh, without, the, without the West, because they're incapable of getting them to market, and/or they're so irrational that they would not let them come to, get to market if they happened to gain control of them. And so you can read about most of the 20th century, from let's say 1920s through the period of decolonization, right? As a you know, one of the arguments is about. Um, uh, what will happen to the West if decolonization takes place? Because in one way or another, the irrational or incapable Easterners, if you want, are not going to uh, allow us to have the resources that we need. Well, that argument, it seems to me, uh, beliefs of this type, of the you know, kind of irrationality or incapacities of, uh, of uh, non-Western peoples or Arab peoples, uh, holds to this day. And so one example of that is uh, the idea that um, if if Arabs nationalize their oil, it would doom the West because the Arabs would not be able to get the oil to market. Right is it and, and you
0: think right, and you you think about um, Mossadegh in Iran, for example
2: exactly- well well Mossadegh it's perfect because if you, Mossadegh is a classic example of right think about how how he was described uh traditionally in the press of the west right once once he started to make noises about nationalization he's irrational, he's a madman, et cetera right well those are the those are the uh adjectives used for virtually every third world nationalist leader from Mossadegh on. You in before too but definitely from Mossadegh on. so the arabs will not be able to do this why folks were calling for in after 1973 for the u.s to consider occupying the oil fields because we they will not be able to deliver the goods to market well look but look what happens right uh, oil oil is now nationalized everywhere it is not western oil firms that are producing it it there it's state-owned oil companies uh it's in it's uh if you want indigenous knowledge Right in the sense that you know uh, Saudis are now perfectly capable of running their uh, uh, oil enterprises, Iraqis are, and so forth. Um, and yet we have, a, and, and so none of the none of the predictions came to pass. Right, none of these what were ultimately kind of racist projections onto the madmen of the third world or the or the you know a deficient. Uh, minds of third world peoples, as we used to say, um, none of those predictions about the about about the a crisis that would ensue had ever come to pass. But we still see the arguments made. So Saddam can't be tr- Saddam can't be uh, trusted to get the oil to market, or he's going to take it all over and he's going to throw he's going to turn he's going he's going to undermine the Western economy. That's why we have to take him out. These kinds of uh, uh, arguments are, are still with us in a way, and they go way back.
0: I think what's I mean, what's even crazier about all of this is that like, when these arguments go, I mean, are starting to come to the fore in the 1920s, that the U.S. was like the largest oil-producing country in the world at the time, right? And yet, people still sort of managed to get convinced that it was in our best interest to then, you know, confront the British in far-flung fun- places, right? That, you know, America is, like, running out of oil. And it's interesting that this is also, like, a constitutive part or premise of the sort of aggressive altruism, to use Parker Boone's uh, term, This sort of aggressive altruism that you're talking about.
2: Well, well, you know, um, here I'm here I'm taking the analysis from Roger Stern. But what Roger says is that you know there have been you know you can again you could graph oil prices, oil price increases and decreases, or the instability right. in the oil markets. And it's in those moments when oil prices are rising that the fear is generated or you know produced that the world is running out of oil or the U.S. is running out of oil. So one must do one must take. Extraordinary steps uh, to secure what is left. Now, the last time we heard that argument, right, powerfully, was in 2002, 2003, 2004, uh, with with the invasion of uh, Iraq by the United States. Uh, you know, think about how. Uh, well, you weren't there, but I can tell you uh, because I was yeah. doing anti I was doing anti-war demonstrations at the time and listening to some of my colleagues. You know, arguing things like, um, really, what Iraq War is about is that the United United States is locked in a war with China for control of the remaining, dwindling resources, oil resources of the world, and uh, uh, and the only thing that could be, the only thing that could, well, if if some people thought that was a good thing, right, because they're nationalists and they think the United States must do this, or if you were a critic of of U.S. Uh, uh, the U.S. policy at that time. You argued the only way to avoid these kinds of conflicts in the future, because they're definitely going to be increasing, we're going to have more oil wars and all other kinds of wars for resources. The only way to stop that is by ending the fossil fuel regime or going green, right, et cetera. And, you know, I want us to like it's now – uh, almost 20 years from that time, and you notice that the world has not run out of oil. The United States and China are not locked in a war, in a war uh, for what was left. The oil that Chinese uh, uh, state-owned oil companies have secured in various places in Africa, etc., are not for uh, uh, China, but is, are basically sold on the world market. And as I show in my book, most of the oil that Chinese state-owned oil companies produce uh, globally go to non-Chinese buyers, go to buyers outside of China. So, um, so this whole notion that uh, the, the world was going to run out of oil and we, 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 we are locked in conflict for what's left looks kind of uh, crazy right now from the vantage point of uh, 2020.
0: Right. The time kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? I want to take us back, okay, to 1973, to what Timothy Mitchell, uh, also of of Colombia, called the crisis that never uh, actually happened. And before you you say anything, I I do want to clarify for the audience uh, (laughs) uh, uh, a detail that's rather important and yet often forgotten. So that OPEC and OAPEC are different. Um, We've got OPEC, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries right? Founded in 1960 in Baghdad. Then we have OPEC, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries. Take us away, Bob.
2: Well, if you go online and uh, type, th- I did this, right, <laughs> in preparation <laughs> for writing one of the essays. If you go online and type OPEC embargo, you will get uh, more hits than you can possibly deal with uh, from, from amateurs to uh, 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 learned professors at uh the Belfer Center at Harvard all of who analyze uh what the so-called OPEC embargo did to the west or to the United States or to the, to Europe or to the, or to those people who hate Israel you get all these kind of crazy things out there but basically the argument is OPEC embargoed the west in 1973 well it absolutely did not do that uh 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 OPEC, you know, this Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, understood uh and made clear that boycotts could not work and they could not work for the reasons that maury edelman laid out quite clearly in 1973 you can't boycott one country right so saudi arabia called for you know at that time saudi arabia called for a boycott of the united states because of its support for israel as you know and uh and the boycott was extended uh to uh rhodesia south africa And uh, the Netherlands, basically, sorry, Portugal, South Africa and the Netherlands uh, for a variety of reasons. And Maury Edelman uh, tried to tell the Nixon administration, "You you shouldn't worry about this because no country can boycott, no oil producer can boycott one country without boycotting all countries. If you're not if you're not cutting off production to the world, well, then that boycotted country is just going to get oil from one of the other oil producers. And that is exactly what happened. So for as you uh, you know, as any Middle Eastern uh, history textbook will tell you that for a few short months in uh, late 1973 and early 1974, um, uh, Arab oil, Arab oil producers with Iraq. Being a notable exception, um called for a boycott uh, of the United States, and they called up boy- and the boycott was called ostensibly until the Palestinians get their legitimate rights, and Israel withdraws from the territories. and as I note in the book, uh, um the boycott is called off quietly six months later with none of those uh, 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 objectives met and at the same time uh Saudi Arabia quietly was <laughs> delivering oil all that time to the single largest oil consumer in the United States, which was the, which was the U.S. military. So even as it's ostensibly boycotting American oil, uh, in response to the 73 war, it's quietly supplying the U.S. military with oil. Um, so no, OPEC never boycotted anyone. The production cutbacks that took place did not have the effects that folks imagined it to have. And maybe the most important one is that, uh, though it's still miswritten today or misbelieved today, OPEC did not quadruple the price of oil by fiat, uh, 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 as folks imagine. None of that happened.
0: Right, right. So I was wondering then if you could talk about the sort of what you call the all-too-real effects of oilcraft in general, but particularly of the sort of OPEC 1973 myth, um, in particular about um, the, I mean, since especially 1979, you know, the deployment of U.S. military force for, you know, guaranteeing access to oil resources and and a sort of approach that, you know, was inherited, you know, from Carter to Reagan to to H.W. Bush, um, and I think in particular of the 82 intervention in the Lebanese civil war.
2: So, so, um, again. Well here let me let me stop and say let me let me stop and say something that I I should have emphasized more in the book uh, but I didn't And uh, though Andrew Bacevich recognized it early on in one of his books, there's a funny thing about U.S. policy after 1973. So you do have an oil crisis, the so-called oil crisis and gas lines and so forth. And my book goes into what were really the causes of those gas lines, et cetera. It wasn't an embargo or production cutbacks. Um, But here's the funny thing. If you were to go, you know, the Pentagon has to write... uh, Uh, Basically, strategy documents, right, uh, uh, for for itself every year, the the national defense policy of the United States. So, despite. 1973 and what we remember of it, 74, 75, 76, 77, there is virtually no talk about the need to use military force to secure uh, uh, oil supplies for the United States. So at the at the worst time of the crisis, it was never envisioned that one needed the military to to do this. And what Andrew Bacevich is you know shocked by or remarks upon or underlines which is then all of a sudden with the fall of the Shah and uh, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Lo and behold, the argument goes: the military has to be there, otherwise um, we might be cut. We might be cut out of you know oil, uh, or we need we need military force projection to secure the free flow of oil. And you know, as you know, the Carter Doctrine says we're going to be we're in the regions of vital national security interest, and it's right. in our interest to protect to stop any outside power uh, uh, from coming in to take. Over the oil with this fantasy concocted that the Soviets were actually seeking to control oils the oil supplies of the Persian Gulf, and I try to spend some time in the book explaining why none of that made sense but so so for six key years right um uh, after the crisis, no one ever think you needed. Or you needed military. Uh, you needed a military solution to an ostensible supply problem, which really wasn't the problem. And then it becomes a problem in the 70s, and it goes up and down as a problem in the in those next uh, decades. But. But the military is still there. And somehow it's imagined that that military is doing something uh, beneficial. Depends, again, what lens you're wearing. For some nationalists in the United States, it's imagined the military is there to get the oil because the U.S. needs that oil. Uh, argument that I kind of try to undermine in the book. For others, like the more globally uh, visionary type folks, they see the U.S. military in place to make sure that the oil gets to their allies who really need it. So it's like this, it's like this uh, good, uh, uh, a welfare good that the U.S. is supplying uh, to its Western allies. Lefties see these same policies and argue quite the opposite. Uh Uh-huh, this is actually the way the United States controls its capitalist allies in the Western Japan by being in the persian gulf we 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 are ready at any time i don't know if they do something we don't like to uh uh, uh block their oil supply I have absolutely no idea how this would work uh and and why we think this would happen, <laughs> but that is what folks believe and continue to write it today uh uh and and so forth so it's it's um they're all they're kind of like fantasy upon fantasy upon fantasy that is that has become embedded and somehow in all of this, Saudi Arabia is imagined as the key right the 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 key to u s you know uh uh, uh, uh security. Uh, and so forth, and that's somehow Saudi is imagined, right, what is the U.S.-Saudi special relationship supposed to be doing? Somehow the Saudi Arabians do something for the United States that they otherwise would not do, and I've yet to figure out what that is uh, because there's no evidence that, for instance, you know, uh, uh, beca- Saudi Arabia um, makes the price of oil lower than it otherwise would be, or if it were a different country, they'd be able to have, you know, jack up the price and somehow that they're doing that for us or that they're supplying more oil to the United States than anywhere else. It's just always completely unclear to me what the oil side of this oil for security bargain is save. I mean, what I conclude is, you know, some people think it's just that the Saudis sell oil. And that's the that's the favor they're doing. But of course, that's no favor to the United States or to any other uh, 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 oil-consuming country in the world. That's the strategy they must deploy in order to continue to exist.
0: Right. That is also you know just h- how markets work. So it's interesting, you know, this this con- common denominator that you're pointing out amongst otherwise antagonistic you know perspectives. These the right wing grand strategists, the sort of left wing critics, um, but you know. Again, as you say, there there's sort of these nested fantasies that uh, you know begin in the 20s. How did we forget the critique of the Columbia School? I mean, so be- between the, the 20s and the 70s, you, you kind of point to the 70s as a sort of traumatic moment, or at least the the period from 73 until the uh, to, uh, until the Soviet invasion and uh, the Iranian uh, revol- uh, Islamic Revolution in 79. Um, but it, it seems like there's a kind of amnesia here. Uh, how how did we forget that earlier? Um, earlier um, era of critique of, 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 of precisely of what we're talking about here?
2: Well, so, I mean, w- uh, there were these sets of professors. They were incredibly smart folks. Uh, they were progressives to a person in the 1920s, Edward Mead Earl, who people still read today, but they read him in a different context. He's imagined now as someone who helped to start uh, the U- start the field of, of uh, grand strategy studies or U.S. security studies in the United States. And that was in the 1940s doing World War II. So he's going to show up in Stephen Wertheim's new book uh, uh, that's just out today about wh- the U.S. decision during the war, right, or how the U.S. comes to the decision that it's going to police the world at the end of World War II, something that was not obvious to American policymakers at the beginning of World War II. So Wertheim is is the um is a Columbia uh, uh, PhD but also you know the second in command at the Quincy Institute so yeah. um, so uh, people like Edward Mead Earl Parker moon uh, Leland Jenks were these progressive era critics who said the arguments of imperial powers that they needed to secure these resources of all sorts, otherwise uh, otherwise they they would uh, um, uh, be destroyed, Um, they worked through the arguments and looked at the data and sort of said, you know, none of this makes any sense. And in fact, it's illusory. And because they were progressives, right, they believed to a person that what was really going on was that business interests, were dictating, or were this were really the source of these strategic beliefs in the 1920s of the need, for instance, to uh, well, that was the time when uh, uh, Britain is fighting for a uh, oil concession in what will become Iraq, right? And and of course. a uh, uh, Great powers or, or uh, policymakers always argued these things in terms of securing the national interest, making sure that these supplies are available to their to their citizens or subjects and so forth. And the and the and the Columbia School critics sort of said, well, none of this makes any sense. And really, what it is is the special pleading of these firms for backing by the state and firms. Getting backing by the state can't say, "Hey, you need to do this simply because it'll make us richer, uh, the investors richer." You need a national security argument for them. So they kind of started to debunk, I would, I would put the national security arguments about the 1920s and the need for colonies. If that, if. If the idea was that that the colonies were there to secure the resources that the, that uh, uh, english English men and women needed or French men and women needed because they basically determined that the colonies were actually supplying minuscule amounts of the strategic resources that they needed uh, of of all sorts so they were debunking uh, these ideas and challenging them at the time and yeah uh, you know th- all of them were forgotten in the next round of of the rise the rise of kind of During the Cold War in the 1940s and 50s, especially in the 1950s and in the 1960s, as the new left starts to develop their critique of imperialism and post World War II American foreign policy, the left comes to accept as true right? Those arguments uh, that the Columbia professors were saying are patently not true, uh, and so they must be there as rationalizations for other other things.
0: I think what's interesting here is that, you know, that sort of, I mean, as you say that, you know, even within their own time, the Columbia school, in a sense, uh, makes very little headway, right? I mean, um, you know, the in the face of these sort of apocalyptic accounts of of scarcity dependency and so on and so forth you know uh the u.s and other sort of imperial powers actually double down on their colonies double down on china and persia as they call them their semi-colonies um and i guess what's interesting is that you know then after the sort of cold war era what you're talking about the sort of new left um within academia we then have the sort of Huntington Fukuyama line, right? Um, and, and it just strikes me that this book is as much about um, academia as it is, in a sense, um, about foreign policy. In that sense, uh, I would,
2: you know. Um... I would say it's fundamentally about academia because I ran into this problem, right? People, you haven't asked me this question yet, but usually what people ask me when we're talking about this book for a while is, okay, so what was the Iraq war really about if it wasn't for oil? You know, and I don't say that it was or wasn't for oil because I I say I can't get into the hearts and minds. I can't read the minds of George Bush. But what I discovered was, or what I concluded was, you can take academics at their word. Okay, so rather than focusing on on the utterances of policymakers, the the written the written you know that written down on the page claims of academics, I assume are what they truly believe, and so I tend to spend much more time analyzing those folks, right? Whether it's Sam Huntington or Fukuyama, and who knew? I didn't certainly that what uh, Fukuyama's first serious work was a defense of the need to uh, protect uh, oil supplies, uh, s- sorry, the, to protect the Persian Gulf uh, from the obvious Soviet threat since the Soviets were coming. This mm. is really his first his first work uh, and so forth. So I look at those folks like Fukuyama and Huntington. Huntington probably did more than anyone else to inf- – not to influence, but to, I would say – um, I don't actually believe scholars have influence on policy. I, I, I think that scholars are the useful ventriloquists. Policymakers use them, like to justify positions they're already going to take anyway. So Huntington served as a useful ventriloquist for Brzezinski, his friend, etc. Right. But nonetheless, Samuel Huntington was, uh, was uh, probably did more to articulate uh, the logic of a U.S. military presence in the Gulf against the Soviets, an argument that, of course, uh, was argued by an argument that everyone assumed at the time. You had to be. You, you sounded crazy if you. Someone like Fred Halliday is one of the few people uh, who criticized these ideas at the time. Said you know uh, uh, if you think the Soviets are coming in to the Persian Gulf to access oil, uh, you don't understand geopolitics nor do you understand oil markets. Right. He was critic. He was a critic all the way. But he was a, he was like a kind of a lone voice at that time. Um, uh, but these beliefs are so deeply ingrained that, you know, you could go to foreign policy now, uh, foreign affairs say, and I remember, uh, Kenneth Pollock and, uh, 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 Stephen Cook, the Council on Foreign Relations Expert, just wrote an article I think about six months ago that explained the tremendously successful u s foreign policy of militarizing the Gulf because, after all, they secured the oil supply for the United States and kept it out of the hands of the Soviets so this was like the great triumph of the Cold War, and they you know it just sounds completely kooky to me because there's no evidence of any of that it's just you know it's like witchcraft right you know witches don't exist but people constantly see them so here are these guys just conjuring up this evidence without any you know proof basically they're just they're just they're just the common wisdom and as maury edelman the economist said you know common sense knows many things that are not true
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, in a way, it seems like this, this this whole story to me from the perspective of the United States uh, is a and, and, and you sort of say in a way, this is a, a book about um, uh, you said about America's kingdom, actually, that it was above all a book about America more than it was about uh, Saudi Arabia. And I think obviously all the more so true for oilcraft. I think what's really about is a sort of fundamental discomfort with and thus, you know, a uh, uh, desperate way to figure out ways around uh the ultimate interdependency of a global capitalist market, right? So I was reminded, especially of what you were saying about Tom Friedman's Thomas Friedman's. Um, I'm sure the audience audience knows um, him. His sort of rhetoric about America being addicted to oil and the sort of alternative being a kind of living green as a sort of solution to dependency on um, on foreign oil. But of course, like, doesn't that also reproduce exactly all of the myths that you're that you're talking about, right? That there is no way to insulate the United States from, you know, for example, the effects of of, of, of price spikes.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. So now you get these right. You know, there is actually you'll see uh, analysts and commentators making moves uh, towards some of the arguments I'm making in this book, but for the wrong reasons. Right. So or oh, right, here let me let me be f- uh, more frank about it or clear or more more straightforward about it. Uh, Here, uh, Bernie Sanders' main foreign policy advisor, a guy named Doss, okay, uh, said something like this recently. Uh, It's Matt Doss, Matthew Doss, and I met him not too long ago. Matt Doss said, look, uh, President Roosevelt and Ibn Saud cut a deal in 1945 to secure – Oil for security to guarantee Saudi oil or Middle East oil for U.S. security. That deal was cut. It was really important because then we needed that oil. We don't need that oil anymore, so we can pull out of the Gulf now. So that's how Bernie's main foreign policy advisor, was justifying a kind of retreat from the Gulf. Like, you know, I don't know if he truly believes this. I wrote to him and said, you know, (laughs) do you truly truly believe this? But, uh, right, that's the way I think some analysts or some policymakers and some advisors imagine – in 2020, we can have a different policy because, you know, we're now producing our own oil uh, through shale, through through uh, sh- unconventional shale and, and so forth, um, and we no longer need the Persian Gulf. And you hear this argument over and over again, right? And that's just kooky. It's a kooky argument because, um, as you just suggested, right? Um, it is one world oil market. And when oil prices go up, for whatever reason, uh, uh, refinery fires uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia, or uh, how about this, right, uh, uh, sanctions on Iran, Venezuela, historically on Iraq, right, and they're not trying to guarantee access to oil, but actually, you know, kind of stopping oil production from happening when prices go up or when prices go down the as they are right now, right? Because of, uh, the, um, You know, because of COVID, basically, and the lack of demand, Uh, the U.S. oil market is affected in precisely the same way as the Saudi oil market is is affected. The prices are the same, so there is no insulating uh, the United States, save uh, if you were to erect like a massive new protectionist regime, and no one's you know no one's arguing for that, or at least they're not they're not yet.
0: So let's get down to you know the sort of present into the future, right? So you've demystified, I think, you know, your book seems to be doing a couple, like two different things, right? Like on the one hand, you're demystifying oil as a raw material, just like any other that functions on the global market, which both means, you know, on the one hand, uh, that we as you know, in, in the United States cannot insulate ourselves from that market by becoming more somehow, independent, less dependent on Saudi oil. But also, and this is a critique of the sort of imperialist instinct that we were we were we were spending on earlier, that a post-Saudi, you know, a post-Saudi Arabia can be counted on to sell its oil on the world market anyway, right? Like this is this has happened before. Iran did so after 79 um Iraq you know Saddam no less did so after the nationalization of foreign concessions. so so you've done that demystifying work and I guess it leaves me with this other question because your book seems to be doing this other thing as well which is trying to suggest a more wary less mystified way forward and I wanted to ask you straight on like what what that was I know that you made brief reference in the book to uh oh god I think Steven Pinker's whole um notion of of going nuclear um uh, uh, as, as an alternative, but, um, but what is, what is the way forward for you?
2: Well, I, uh, the, the, I am not a, uh, climate or energy, uh, uh, expert, right. And I, I don't have a blueprint, uh, for a, uh, uh a green new deal or any other, uh, 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 uh alternative. That's not what, the, what, what the book is about. So for me, What's going f- for the what is important in going forward is, uh, you know, I guess I think about it this way. So say you're an activist. OK, um, uh, if if uh, here here well, no, I've got the per- I've got a perfect I've got a, a, a better example for you. So uh, we tried to foment a coup in Venezuela recently. Well, the left argued it's obvious why we're doing that uh because uh we're interested in the raw material we're interested in oil, and I you know this is like the goofiest thing I had ever heard because of course, Venezuela has a reliable supplier of oil to the united states it it uh, you know uh, uh refineries in the United States were owned by Venezuelans, just as refineries are owned by the way uh in the United States are owned by Saudi Arabia, so when people predicted for instance that now that we're fracking, we won't be getting Saudi oil imports anymore. That was another piece of it was just goofy nonsense because Saudi refineries exist in the United States to um uh as as uh, reliable markets for saudi crude so you know saudi oil saudi owned oil refineries are buying saudi owned crude oil did not you know uh uh uh, oil, oil imports from Saudi Arabia did not end as fracking increased, etc. So my idea is I wish folks who read this book, the next time you hear an argument like this, you are able to turn around and sort of say, you know, if, you, if the state is actually doing that, that would be a really stupid thing for it to do because it doesn't <laughs> need to do it. And or maybe you need yourself to rethink the, you know, the extent to which you need, you're holding on to this belief that under underlying US foreign policy has to be right these very crude material explanations, its resources here, you know, right now it's a uh, 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 in, Equ- in Ecuador, there, people believe there's gonna be like a lithium war, etc. Right. Uh, and uh, it it
0: it, ma- it makes no sense. Right. Uh, be- anyway, it, uh right. No, no, it is. It is an interesting kind of uh, fetishization of the supposedly uh, material and uh, uh, concrete. But I, I think what's fascinating here is the way in which, you know, uh, eco- efforts at sort of economic isolationism and then also of imperialism are sort of two sides of the of the same coin. Um, so um, thank you so much for your for your time, Bob. I actually wanted to ask. So you mentioned. Uh, by way of closing, you mentioned earlier that you, oilcraft was one of two subsequent projects that you had pointed to um, in one of your earlier books. Can you tell us uh, what the other one is or if, what you're working on in the future?
2: Well, if emphasis on the future, because have you noticed? So, so Oilcraft's the first book I've ever written that is not uh, a, based in archival uh, research, because I love working in archives more than life itself. It's it's given me such incredible pleasure, and of course, there are no you are not going to any archives these days. But <laughs> but uh, two in uh, two or three years ago, I did some archival work, and uh, my next project. Is uh, assuming I'm alive long enough is a study of the rise of the militant right in American national security studies in the in the 1950s, uh, in 1960s.
0: Fabulous, and we're all going to be anxiously awaiting that. Uh, final question: I noticed that you mentioned Taylor Swift in your acknowledgments. Favorite Taylor Swift album, Bob?
2: 1989.
0: Though so oh, I love them yes. all. <laughs> you and me both alright thanks so much Bob for uh, chatting with us during these uh, crazy crazy times take care Nancy thanks with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere